You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hey there, Taylor. You made it. Barely, Cindy. Barely. But I'm here. We've made it through yet another week. And just like clockwork, we're back here for another conversation at The Leader's Table. Yes, we are. And hello to everyone listening out there. We're so glad that you made it too. This week at the leader's table, Jason sits down with Marco Davis, president and CEO of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. Oh, I know CHCI. Similar to Lee, they're a nonprofit dedicated to developing the next generation of leaders. However, CHCI focuses on giving some pretty incredible training and experiences to Latino or Latinx students, young professionals, and leaders. That's right. CHCI is an incredible organization that we'll hear a bit more about in the interview. But I like that we also really get to hear how Marco discovers strength in his identity as a biracial New Yorker and how that took him all around the country teaching leadership skills, ultimately leading him to D.C., where he served in several positions during the Obama administration, including, and get this, as deputy director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for Hispanics. Oh, nice. Yeah, I know. Marco is an expert in leadership development and is a frequent speaker on topics including the Latinx community, diversity in the nonprofit sector, and education. Great. He'll fit right in with all the other incredible guests we've had at the leaders' table. I can't wait to hear the conversation. Let's get this started then. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the leaders' table with Marco Davis. Marco Davis, welcome to the Leaders Table. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So excited to host you today. Uh, we're going to talk about exciting stuff like the one percent problem. But before we get to there, your theory of change, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, um, and all the other ways that you are thinking about this problem of Latino leadership, we really want to get to know you. So sure. let's start there. Tell us a little bit about you. What made Marco Davis from your earliest experiences? <laughs> um, well, let's see. Uh, the story I usually tell people, the, the short version of my bio is, um, so I am originally a New Yorker, born and raised in New York, uh, but the son of immigrants. Uh, my father is actually from Jamaica, West Indies, uh, and my mother is actually from Mexico, from uh, the city of Guadalajara, the second largest city in Mexico. So both my parents were raised in their respective countries and came to the United States as adults. Um, uh, my father actually came to college in the U.S. first, uh, but then met, and then went down to Mexico. Met my mom there, and then they moved up to the U.S. Um, two older sisters, uh, so I'm the only son and the youngest, uh, which I think informs uh, uh, a little bit about how I see the world. Right? Um, uh, yeah. So grew up just outside of New York City, a town called Mount Vernon. Bonnie um, Ernan. Indeed, indeed. Uh, went away to college. Well, I guess education wise, an important thing. Education was an important um, value in our family. Education was essentially my father's ticket off the island to the US, all kinds of things. And so he pushed my family very hard on education uh, to do as best as we could and to get the best possible education. So as a result, uh, I went to the local public elementary school, but then I actually went to private school for middle school and high school there in suburban New York. Um, and that sent me on a path that uh, uh, led me to Yale University for college, uh, so a little ways up the road in Connecticut. Um, came back to New York, worked for a year with an organization named Prep for Prep. Got started in my 
uh, youth development, youth leadership development uh, uh, career there. Um, lived in California for six months uh, in the Bay Area. I had a sister who had moved out there and stayed out there. So got to experience San Francisco and Oakland in the early 90s. Uh, but then came to D.C., came to Washington, D.C., uh, around the mid-90s, uh, landed in the nonprofit sector, um, and and spent a good 13 years at uh, what was then known as the National Council of La Raza, now known as uh, Unidos U.S., where I kind of really, I say I grew up. I really learned a lot while I was there about the Latino community, about leadership development, about the nonprofit sector, et cetera. And after another job or two, which I can talk about uh, if desired, but um, I had a detour into government, worked in the administration of President Barack Obama for six years, um, then another stint in another nonprofit organization, then finally last May landed at, uh, at CHCI and have been there ever since. So you've been in some really unique spaces, Yale University, um, New York City, kind of sort of suburban. Mount Vernon is actually super unique. Worked, worked in a presidential administration, um, worked for a storied nonprofit. What is the experience that you think most forged you for leadership? Well, I'll tell you, the, funnily enough, when I was in college, I was uh, invited to go attend an informational session for a fraternity named Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, which is a historically black fraternity. In fact, the first uh, uh, historically black college-based fraternity. Um, and that I would say, and, and long story short, I pledged in those days, it was called pledging uh, and became a member of that fraternity. And I would say that's actually sort of the first most significant uh, uh, formative experience for me that set me on a path to leadership. Um, it it, it, it kind of changed my whole perspective around leadership, around uh, so what we call social responsibility now, right? About my connection and my obligation, as I would describe it, to my community. Community is plural, um, and that really was something that's pretty significant. Uh, yeah. yeah, I want to take you back a little bit to um, you know I made a reference to money earning Mount Vernon. Yeah. Uh, if you grew up in New York at a certain time, if you listen to a rapper uh, named Heavy D, I think who coined the term yep. um, money earning Mount Vernon, kind of coined this kind of working class, hard, like kind of hard come up place right outside of New York City that was connected to a train. Yep. What did you learn in Mount Vernon that you take to your life in DC? First of all, so Mount Vernon, like you said, it's, a, it's technically a suburb of, uh, of New York City, um, but it's right on the border. Literally, its southern border is uh, the Bronx. Um, it is the, I'm told it was the first city in New York state to have a black mayor. It was known as some, something of a bedroom community where basically working class folks who could save just enough to buy themselves a house and to get out of paying what was then, I suspect still notoriously high New York city taxes would sort of move as, as close as they could often still working in the city into Mount Vernon. And so, and places like Yonkers as well and New Rochelle that are, that are towns that folks might've heard of. Um, and so it was a, it was a working class town. Right. But by the time I got there, it, it had become a majority black uh, city. Um, and so my school, my elementary school was mostly black, um, a little bit white. And interestingly, um, had a very few Latinos who uh, turns out were mostly like Puerto Rican and Cuban, given New York City. But that actually I didn't even realize were Puerto Rican or Cuban. Right. Really, the, the lines broke down to being either black or white. And of course, I 
present as a black male, right? And so I was connected to, to the black community, but uh, from the very earliest times I can remember, people were aware and not too negatively, but would comment on the fact that I was a little different given that my mom spoke Spanish, right? My mom spoke English with a heavy accent. My mom presents as white, Latina. Um, and so people sort of knew there was something different about me, but of course they knew very little, very little exposure, seven, you know, seven, eight year olds, very little understanding about Mexico. Um, but they just knew that, again, that I sort of had a bit of a different background than, than many other folks who were either African-Americans or of Caribbean descent, et cetera. So that was one thing I think I take with me. And then, like you said, I think that hustle kind of perspective, as you said, sort of the striver kind of mentality of we are all trying to get ahead. We're trying to save. We're trying to think about ways to do better and to move forward uh, is, is, I think, probably some of the personality of that town that I, that I think I take with me. Who was the first leader that you remember engaging when you were growing up? I mean, it's cliche to say, but I think in some ways, I think of my dad for sure. My dad was definitely, uh, my dad, you know, uh, um, true to a to a fault of stereotype, I suspect sometimes, right? My father was the archetypal sort of Caribbean man who was sort of full of pride, full of confidence, um, didn't take guff from anybody, right? And um but so again, for me, that was a real strong example of someone who who set his own path, right? And who didn't necessarily um, cower in front of folks, right? Uh, or or take uh, mistreatment lightly, right? And so I think that was something of seeing him not only stand up for himself, but in fact, forge his own path and, and, and assert himself and set up his own office, um, a, a medical office, a medical practice, those kinds of things, I think back is probably the first one that stands out in my mind. In terms of the question of who I think of as, as the first leader, I, I would probably say the folks that I started to look up to, if I think of authority figures that I admire, that I respected, probably would be my teachers, right? And I think that's maybe not unusual. I think all throughout elementary school, I think through middle school, even high school, um, teachers were many times the folks most directly in my life who I saw asserting authority, who I saw making wise decisions, who I saw thinking about the well-being of a group of people, namely their students or the school at large. Um, and that pro probably for me has some role in, in the career path I ended up taking. What's, what's one thing from your unique vantage point you just wish everyone understood better? Yeah, you know, I think something that for me has has been in my mind and thankfully people far smarter than me finally came up with a term um, uh, to, to, to name it is intersectionality. And the way I think of intersectionality, and there's actually a formal definition, but, um, but the way I think of intersectionality is that for me, I've always felt that identity in a way, or at least I'd say an impact of intersectionality is that identity in a way is situational that identity actually is not an absolute permanent fixed either uh, uh, individual kind of concept or, or worse yet, it's not a binary thing where you are, you aren't, and you're this or you're that. Um, and so the examples for me in the Latino community are easy in that, you know, surveys after survey talks about facts uh, talks about people are interviewed and they're asked, which, for example, there's a lot of debate in the in the Hispanic community right now, right, about how we refer to ourselves, whether Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, et cetera. But survey after survey asks, and most often the first answer people give is their country of origin, right? Their answer is, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm Venezuelan, I'm Cuban, I'm Salvadoran. But I, I am fairly certain, and certainly from anecdotally from talking to people, that 
where they absolutely feel that pride, I guarantee, certainly I know Mexicanos, uh, if, if, if Mexicans get together, um, then it's specifically, I'm from Jalisco. Yo soy Tapatillo. My mother's from Guadalajara, right? And Mexico City is completely different. It, um, and so on, right? Within. And then at a broader sense, in the U.S., Mexicans do feel affinity, whether that's their first choice or not, um, to, to define themselves. They do feel affinity with other Latinos. And so they absolutely do recognize that in the U.S., for example, they're Latinos, uh, they're Hispanics, and they have affinity with Colombians and Venezuelans who, who in other senses and in other circumstances might have nothing to do with them. The analogy I give for folks in the U.S. is the easy examples that in the U.S., I'm a New Yorker, and it's quite clear that I'm a New Yorker, and Texans are Texans, and Californians are Californians, and, and everybody makes sure that people, and folks from Jersey, right? Folks are clear about where they're from. You leave the United States, though, you're American, right? And if you're with people from other countries, then it's not about like, I'm not American, I'm New Yorker. You're an American because you're with non-Americans, right? And so that's, for me, the way, an example of how we see that that identity can, identity can be situational. And so again, in my case, perfect example, the thing I learned and experienced was when I'm around black folks, I'm African, I'm black. I am African-American, right? Through my father, but and I think many Afro-Latinos experience this as well, is that we're a part of that community, that culture, and we can very much feel fully 100%, not half, but 100% part of that community. I'm around Latinos. I am also Latino. And, and I'm also Black, obviously. I don't stop being one or the other. But what I emphasize, what I use to resonate and connect with other people, that shifts and that varies based. Again, if I'm around Mexicanos, like I'm all in about being Mexicano, right? Um and if I'm around non-Mexicanos, then being Latino and, and in some ways having been a New Yorker, being raised around Caribbean folks and being connected to Puerto Rican and Cuban culture, because uh, Dominicans came later, I'm a little older, uh, <laughs> um, it, it is, is a piece of experience and lived experience that I draw on to make connections with people. And so for me, that's, I think, something that folks should realize that it's not like you are this one thing, you will always be this one thing, regardless of who you are around. And I mean, and, and it, all of those things will always be a part of you, but what comes to the forefront might shift and change, and that's okay. I want to transition a little bit. Today, you are um, leading the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. Thousands of, of alumni who've come through the, the doors of the Institute, myself included, several staff at Leadership for Educational Equity. And thousands looking to the institution forward for guidance, for a path to leadership, for, um, for help in fixing the 1% problem. The, that the idea that we are so underrepresented in leadership that only 1% of the elected leadership opportunities in the country are held by people of Latino, Latina, Latinx heritage. Talk a little bit about your vision for the institution, for Latino leadership generally, um, and what is what is to come uh, from the storied institution you lead? <laughs> certainly, certainly. Uh, and thanks for your, uh, your your continued loyalty to the organization as an alum uh, and to your colleagues. Um, I I took this job because I was really inspired by, as you mentioned, the, the tremendous legacy it has, the mission it believes in, and the potential I see in it. Um, and I think that the organization has already established itself, but I think will continue, it will increasingly um, be able to have an impact on the trajectory of the Hispanic community in the United States going forward. And the reasons are that 
its mission, our tagline of developing the next generation of Latino leaders, I have taken to heart and, to, and, and have thought about expansively. So we started 42 years ago, 1978, essentially as a, a vehicle for the Hispanic members of Congress, the relatively newly formed in those days, Congressional Hispanic Caucus, to connect with each other and quote unquote, give back to the community, right? And it started with a, with a, a concept and a mission that was pretty general like that. And it was to help uh, uh, provide educational opportunities and to support the communities they represented. Um, and very quickly they sort of realized, and this is also a way to build a pipeline for us here on Capitol Hill, because they saw there were so few of them uh, on Capitol Hill in Congress, uh, and, and, and equally, if not more importantly, so few of them working as staffers, much less uh, as elected officials, right? And so through our internships and fellowships, we place uh, students and young professionals from anywhere in the U.S. Um, in congressional offices to get firsthand experiences as staffers, short term as interns or, or even longer, slightly longer term as fellows. Um, and certainly eliminating cost was one of the big pieces, right? The fact that so many internships uh, in D.C. are unpaid, um, that's only starting to change now, 40 years later, but for the longest. And therefore, it was an economic uh, uh, equation of whether or not you could even try your luck at, at getting into the, uh, breaking open doors, breaking down doors in, in Capitol Hill. And so we were able to, to, crew, to level at least some, somewhat that playing field. But what we've learned over the years is that folks have gone on to work in Capitol Hill, but they've also gone on to work in the nonprofit sector, as you just pointed out, Jason, you and many of your colleagues are at places like Lee. Um, they've gone on to work in the private sector. They've gone to work for corporate America. Some of them have gone to start, on, start their own businesses, and some of them have gone into philanthropy. And so we, I look at that and sort of say, what we've done is not just create a pipeline for Capitol Hill staffers, but actually create a pipeline truly of leaders for any and all sectors. And how and why are we able to do that? And, and what does that mean for our future? And so for me, I think we've done a few things. As the program has grown and evolved, we've continued to sort of build and establish uh, and support the development of core leadership competencies, right? Standard kind of vision and delegation and strategy and problem solving and teamwork, et cetera, fundamental elements of any leader anywhere. Um, we continue to have the component of helping people understand and explore their own Latino identity, but also understand the breadth and diversity of the Latino community, making sure that through the program they learn who are in fact these 60 million people that come from 20 different countries, right? Where are they located? What kind of features and, 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 and aspects do they have both in common and statistics and trends that they face? And what are the differences among us as a community, which helps them represent our population when sadly still to this day they they all too often are the first if not the first the one of the only people from our community who are in those rooms or in those roles that they go on to and then the third piece that i think is is critical and that we'll continue to build on is um one the experience of working on the hill gives them insight first of all into public policy which again i think is a tremendously important skill uh, in any field, again, in any sector, because understanding how public policy works is really critical. And so for me, that's the future of CHI is continuing to grow those 
uh, cohorts and those generations of leaders who, again, will have firsthand knowledge in public policy, who will be able to take on uh, uh, public service roles, working on the Hill, running for office themselves at the local, state, and federal level, but also taking on leadership roles in all the other sectors too, and being able to assert themselves as leaders and, and to tackle the underrepresentation uh, 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 challenge that you mentioned, which by the way, 1% is among the most stark um, statistics we have in public office, but you know, quite as it's kept, we're underrepresented in educational leadership, right? If memory serves, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of superintendents, school board members, and university presidents. If memory serves right, it's Hispanics are 2% of school superintendents, 3% of school board members, and 4% of university presidents, right? We're not doing a whole lot better in those areas. F Fortune 500 companies, corporate boards, philanthropy leadership, you name it. We're underrepresented everywhere. And that, in my mind, is, again, what brings me back to the mission of CHCI, which is that we need leaders for all of those roles, for all of those positions. And we've got to ramp up the 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 pipeline and the supply to to get folks ready to take on those positions and to represent us better absolutely there's such power in this network you know over 20 years ago my first experience with chei was in 1999 um the 30 of us in a summer internship i worked for then senator daniel patrick moynihan wow um and the of the 30 of us uh, 40 percent are lawyers today wow the grand majority have gone on to, to get graduate degrees and more than half are in notable leadership positions. It's remarkable to see. Um, and I, I just, I know that, uh, that as the, the institution matures um, and as your vision unfolds for the institution, for us as an alumni association, I hope that Leadership for Educational Equity is a, is a key partner in that. And, um, and of course, uh, in all the ways that we can, uh, we can help, that I can help personally, I hope, that you will engage all of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're talking with you folks at Lee all the time about working more closely together, collaborating more, and, and formalizing our partnerships. So yeah, more to come on that front for sure. Excellent. Marco, I want to ask you a few questions about your definitions of, of leadership. So today, uh, listening to this is a, is, a, is a young woman who's either sitting in a classroom or she might be sitting in her community in a job, just getting prepared for leadership. And she's thinking, well, what, what is my definition of equity today? And what does it mean to be an equity leader? How, do you, how would you um, answer those questions? In my mind, I think a lot of the conversation around equity in our society these days has become around realizing that Whereas we'd like to think that everybody has sort of an equal shot, um, we've come to understand that in very specific systemic and structural ways, but also in very individual, personal, intangible ways, um, the road is not the same for different people. Um, and sometimes the road is, is, is truly heavily blocked for some folks in our communities. And so... The idea about being an equity leader is actually trying to eliminate those those roadblocks or at least making sure that no one has more roadblocks than anyone else for reasons that are not um, uh, their fault, that are that are not um, intrinsic to them, but that are based on external factors. What has changed most in you as a leader, um, not just during the during your your stint as a, as president and CEO of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, but over over your entire career? 
Wow. How are you different now than you were two, three, four, five years ago? I'm far more, um, well, far more, but um, I think I'm more um, confident and comfortable around uh, my ideas, my vision, my thoughts of, of where we can go as a society. I, I think, um, I don't think my ideas or my vision were so much better than anyone else's or, or so much more advanced than the rest of the world. I think many other people had ideas. I think there were few of us who had gotten enough of a full picture to arrive at some of these conclusions, ideas. And there were certainly, I think, too few of us who thought these ideas had any real possibility of, of, of coming about, right, of becoming reality. And I think now I find that sort of, again, my my squad, to use the popular term, has grown, right? And the fact that there's many more people than there used to be who agree with some of the opinions I have, who see some of the progress and change and reform that we need in our society. Um, and so I feel much better about that. And then interestingly, you know, strange kind of juxtaposition from that. I think as a leader internally, I'm also more patient. Um, I've also come to think about things with a longer lens. I've come to realize that, you know, again, to use all the cliches, I'm a big fan of all the famous quotes and cliches, right? That as, as, uh, as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who is my fraternity brother, uh, said, you know, the, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And for me, people remember that, but the key, one of the key points of that sentence to me is that it's long that the arc is long, that it's not something that happens overnight uh, or that quickly. And so I think back to earlier times, I put stuff in context of history and I sort of then realize the progress we're making. I heard a really profound statement from, from, a, from an activist who was deeply in, engaged in racial justice and specifically criminal justice reform. And she said, um, Someone asked her about sort of how she was feeling, you know, I think this was in July or so or August about sort of how we were as a nation, as a society in light of just the incredibly brutal and shocking and painful killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the things we now were talking about as a society. And she said she was more hopeful than she'd ever been. Right. And people were like, what? Right. Because it's like you look around and you're like, what is there to be hopeful about? And she was like. You don't understand, seeing the marches, seeing the protests, seeing the rallies that have come out speaking for justice and raising phrases like Black Lives Matter to be common terms. She's like, we are closer to actual criminal justice reform than we possibly have ever been before. There are more people motivated and activated to see change than there have ever been than there has ever been before. Um, and yeah, it's absolutely agonizing that something so awful had to happen and be filmed for people to be moved. And we wish that we that hadn't been what was the, the, the motivating factor. But she was like, but the reality is where we are today, given what I, you know, I can't go back and change the past. I'm hopeful because again, I see more progress than I've seen in a very long time. And so the last thing I'll say is that the other way in which I'm different, I think, than I was three, four, five years ago is that I've discovered at this relatively later point in life, or at least this far down in my career, that I'm an optimist at heart, that I actually am, am always thinking that the, the future is going to be better, no matter how tough things look today. Thank you for that. Marco, I want to do some, uh, some short answer questions with you. All right. 
Um, if you could snap your fingers to make one change for kids in community today, what would that one change be? Yeah, um, I think I would, and I think about this often in the education context, I, I think I would want to give each student their own combination of fairy godparent and Sherpa. And what I mean by that is I think the, the two most fundamental things that I think every young person needs are a very strong, caring, committed, dedicated person in their lives, an adult who provides that unconditional love and support on the one hand. And on the other, the second thing that they need that I find certainly in the Latino community, and I think in many, many other communities, I would argue all low-income communities, et cetera, is someone who can provide them with all of the information that they're lacking about how to navigate the educational process, about how to make good choices as a young person, but also how to make smart decisions as a student or as a family about their education, how to make informed decisions and good choices um, about the ways to navigate, that, that they can access AP classes, that they can um, get extra support and tutoring, that they can be tested for learning disabilities, that the problems that they're experiencing at home that play out in their education are not their fault and that there are services that could be providing them those supports to eliminate the challenges that they that translate to, to education, that they can apply to and be accepted to far more competitive colleges and universities that they think and that they can afford to go to them if they access the financial supports that exist in our society, right? And it goes on and on and on. So for me, information is one of the critical things. And so having somebody who could totally help them navigate that, right? And who could be their font of wisdom, who could be their personalized combination of Google and Siri and Alexa all in one, but who's also human, right? And has that, like I said, that loving bond with them that also shows them that that, that someone cares about them would be the thing I do. What's one school a tool, a skill, a resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you wish every leader that you know would know about and use? I'd say that the I choose a skill. I think a skill that is uh, underappreciated and underutilized these days is a highly developed ability to communicate. Um, I think right now the uh, there's a shortage of enough people who can clearly present a vision coherently and more importantly persuasively, right? That reflects the desires and the values of an audience uh, or of a group being led. Um, increasingly in these days, there's such a reliance on written communication, whether that's email or increasingly texting, that people, I think, forget about the power of speech, um, about connecting face to face, even across video, but leaders sharing this vision and moving people to act upon uh, their words, frankly, right? And I think that's something when people think about famous quotes, they remember best um, quotes that were said as part of speeches more than they think about, more than they remember strongly the quotes that they read about. The, when, a, when a speaker connects with an audience, I find that they reach them not just intellectually, but also emotionally. And so for me, I think um, one of the ways I think people could do that is to take a, 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 a training, a course in public speaking, right? Join a, a Toastmasters chapter, um, get media training. I mean, there's lots of ways in which people can do it, but I think people need to take or should take um, this idea of public speaking uh, as a skill 
to develop formally, to get training on, to get take a class on it, et cetera, so that they could do it. Because there is an art to it, um, but there's also a science to it, and there's ways in which people can strengthen that skill uh, and do better, which again, I think will help make movements happen more, uh, will help ideas spread more widely, and will help people be more inspired to action. What's a piece of advice you would give to your 23-year-old self? Uh, um, I think I would say continue to be ambitious, but make time to enjoy the journey. Uh, worry less about what comes next, um, reaching an imagined set of goals in life. I think when I was 23, I was very, very worried about what I was going to do and what I was going to be and what I needed to do to get there. And I didn't necessarily take the time to, as they say, stop and smell the roses. Uh, but now I look back and, and, and my memories are about relationships I've had, right? About experiences I've had. Um, it's, it, it, it's not the moment I achieved a particular role or, or reached some sort of accomplishment. It was actually the, some of the simpler, easier things of just spending time with friends and meeting people and, 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 and for taking trips and so on. And I think the younger generation has actually really tapped into that far better than, than my generation did and that they realized that rather than possessions, and you know, I think I've read somewhere that, that they value experiences more than possessions. And I think that's really a smart approach that I wish I had thought of earlier. Mm. Let's move to our lightning round. These are going to be three second answer questions. All right. So when you feel overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus? Music. What's one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future? Um, their unbridled optimism. Why is that? Um, because they aren't cynical yet. They aren't bound by, they're not weighed down by responsibilities or even haven't been jaded by failures yet. They think that the world is still full of possibilities and they're excited by it. And so that makes me excited. <laughs> Who's a, a leader that inspires you today? I'll tell you, somebody who inspires me right now that I think not enough folks know about is Congressman Tony Cardenas from California. And, and, I hold him up as an example, um, again, of someone po folks should know, but not, um, but not that he is so different from so many other of his colleagues and frankly, so many other leaders who are out there. But he, he's a perfect example in my mind of someone who, and he is incredibly fearless. He is someone who puts the well-being of the Hispanic community and frankly of all Americans um, always at the forefront of everything he does. And he allows himself to think big. He is always pushing the envelope in terms of saying, why can't we do more? Why can't we go farther as opposed to simply saying this is enough and we should settle for this, right? How do we truly create equity? It's not about sort of small incremental pieces that hopefully someday will eventually even out, but how do we overcome injustices and how do we sort of make things right so that things are truly fair, right? And sometimes you have to be pretty audacious to actually uh, uh, turn the tables so that you actually get to equity like within our lifetimes. So. Tony Cardenas is a hell of a guy. <laughs> Marco Davis, thank you for your time, for your generosity of wisdom, insight. Uh, we so wish you the, the wind at your back with it, at CHCI and for all that, that comes ahead as well. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Marco was right, Cindy. That was a real pleasure. Yep, that was awesome. 
I thought he had some very insightful thoughts about navigating the world as a multiracial person. He so amazingly pointed out that with being black through his father's side and Latino through his mother's side, that it doesn't make him half and half. He reaffirmed the idea or fact rather that he is very much 100% black and also 100% Latino or Latinx. He just has the gift of being able to relate to even more people in completely authentic ways. And I think I very much relate to that because of my own identity. I'm Salvadoran American, so I'm Salvadoran from my parents' side, but American in that I was the first in my family to be born in the United States. And so for me, here in the US, I'm not seen as 100% American because I'm a daughter of two Salvadoran immigrants. And when I'm in El Salvador or with family members, I sometimes feel I'm not seen as a quote unquote real Salvadoran because I was born in the US. And that's really challenging because the reality is that I'm both. And so over the years, similar to what Marco has shared, I've been able to see that there is so much beauty in the way that I've been created and so much value and that I can relate to two different cultures or identities and I can serve as a bridge between the two to connect each with the other. Thanks for sharing that, Cindy. I see the ways that you bridge different cultures and identities. What I thought was interesting was Marco's explanation of equity, and I thought it was spot on. He illustrated it by saying that while many people might be traveling down the same roads together, that there can be different and major roadblocks for folks in some communities, but not others. This inequity can be seen in the stat he gave about Latinx people only being 2% of school superintendents, 3% of school board members, and only 4% of university presidents. There's no reason for that. I totally agree with him about the importance of ramping up the supply of diverse leaders and getting them into the pipeline. So that way, folks can be better represented. Yep, and luckily, that is exactly what organizations like Lee and CHCI do, helping equity-minded individuals realize their leadership potential so that when the opportunity arises, they can get out there and be the leaders that they were born to be. Well said, Cindy. It's almost like you've taken that public speaking course Marco recommended. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, along with the episode transcript and links to find the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute's and Marcos's very own podcast called Here to Lead. That sounds perfect, Taylor. Those show notes can be found at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. If you enjoy the episode, you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. While you're there, please give us a review. You can also write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, myself, Cindy Centeno. And me, Taylor Stewart. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and written and produced by Graham Forden. Thanks for pulling up a seat at the Leaders Table. Be well, stay safe out there, and until next time. everyone. I'm Atira Griffin, and I'm here to talk to you about Lee's virtual course called Exploring Your Leadership with Lee. Exploring Your Leadership with Lee is designed exclusively for Lee members like you to help you reflect on the unique needs of your community and figure out how your own leadership abilities could best be used. This course takes anywhere from three to six hours to complete, and it's totally self-guided and self-paced. You'll walk away with a clearer vision of equity and a deeper understanding of the pathways through which leaders can support their communities and make an impact. If you're a Lee member and the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course piques your interest, please log in at educationalequity.org. Click the virtual content link on the right of your member homepage 
and then select the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course to begin. This course is for all Lee members with all levels of experience. It's totally free and best of all, it is designed to fit into your busy life. Once again, log in at educationalequity.org and click virtual content on the right to find the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee link. We look forward to helping you discover the next steps in your leadership journey.